0: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colbrook. Today I'll be speaking with Eugenie Kohler-Hausman, author of Getting Tough, Welfare and Imprisonment in 1970s America, published by Princeton University Press in 2017. Kohler-Hausman outlines how politicians and lawmakers got tough on drugs, crime and welfare during the 1970s, Abandoning their commitment to individual rehabilitation, lawmakers passed a series of punitive laws which championed strategies of punishment, surveillance, and containment. Professor Kola Hausman, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you.
0: Great. So I'd like to begin by asking about your own intellectual background and what brought you to this particular topic.
1: So I... uh came to this particular project in history in general, really from work that I did outside of the academy i when I graduated uh, from college, I went to live in Seattle, Washington, which is a stunningly gorgeous, beautiful place and I ended up spending six years working with labor groups and anti poverty organizations and advocates and coalitions of s- coalitions of uh, Advocates that were working in at the state level and at the federal level and at the local level around issues of inequality. Um, and and I did that work for a while and I was really I mean it was heart it it was heart-wrenching work, it was difficult work, it was a period of time um the, the one of the main campaigns that i worked on was the reauthorization of the welfare reform law you know the the original 1996 welfare reform law had to be reauthorized and i i was really struck by a number of things um obviously during that during that period but i was really uh, obsessed with or and, and disturbed by the incredible power of 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 myth or rhetoric about poverty, about people who were poor, about people who were receiving state benefits. And, and so I became, I I became really fascinated with sort of political discourse and political culture because we just spent so much time trying, so much of our work was centered around having to say over and over again, you know, actually people on public assistance are not having extra children to, to to get an extra like $100 a month. I mean, it's just it was bananas things we were having to say. Um, and they were so powerful, the ideas. And over and over again, we were having to trot out research that said that people who were poor were poor. Um, people that that people who applied for food stamps needed help to buy food. I mean it was just really stunning and I was really struggling with how to make sense of the the thing, the ideas about poverty and inequality that that felt like such incredibly structured features of the environment. I mean it felt like I was walking into mountains and buildings. They were so powerful. Obviously so racialized. Um and and so so it was so that was one thing that made me i was i was actually profound. I wasn't just like indignant, and oh, I need to change things. I really just didn't quite understand how they how these ideas had had developed and how they were so strong, um, and how people had tried over time to move around them or move them or change them. So that was one of the big things that started that that got me interested in going in going into the academy and working on these questions it really was it did really it did really didn't come from um engagement with the historical literature actually you know i mean that came later and it got my questions got much more focused but in fact i was just delightfully surprised when i got into the academy and found that there was a great, you know, really rich, amazing literature on the history of welfare and on um, the the wealth, the welfare state and maternalism and um, poor women's organizing, you know, and wealth, the welfare rights movement. I really, we had done, we had been doing all that work. At least I had been doing all that work. Uh, quite, uh, quite separated from, or not very informed by the history, you know, by the history, and so. So you know, so once I got into the academy, that uh, that shifted. But but the project that I started really started growing out of my work, you know, very concerned with 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 the welfare state, with women's issues, with racial inequality uh, within the welfare state, and but but I arrived, and, and I won't you know go on and on with all of my 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 history, but but I arrived not just with an interest in that, but with a feeling that came again from my experience looking at watching community organizing and watching um, the political fights and the political rhetoric, I arrived convinced that you really can't talk about the welfare state and the changes in the welfare state. And you certainly couldn't talk about AFDC, you know, welfare uh, without addressing the ways that it was always intertwined with, often intertwined with discussions of crime and the criminal justice system. so I hadn't worked on those issues before coming to graduate school but I had been constantly discussing them and involved in thinking about them and be, and just and cognizant of the role of 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 the of the penal system in people's lives that I was was that I was hearing about um so that was really the challenge that I that that, that was really the the kind of charge that I came to graduate school, with just an intellectual, a really sort of profound intellectual confu- confusion that I needed, that I wanted help sorting out, uh, and a and a belief that I couldn't, that, that I didn't know how, that I couldn't think about the changes that I had seen or the the politics that I had confronted around around economic and social inequality without trying to integrate the penal system. Um, and so and so so that's sort of how I arrived at at, at the intellect at the at, at gra- in graduate school. Um, and you know if you want we can talk more about there was there's a whole well, there was a whole another struggle about trying to figure out how and if it made sense to try to put these things together in a in a study and how that plugged into the other conversations happening in in the field but in some ways that's the, those were really the most significant um, impetuses to, to to the to the study and to me trying to go to hi- to become a historian in the first place.
0: Great, fascinating. So um, you just mentioned there at the end uh, the the decision to intertwine these these narratives. How uh, how did you go about doing that and? What uh, initially motivated you to to look at them both like that? Well, look at all three, the war on drugs, uh, the penal system, and welfare reform in one study.
1: So <laughs> I laugh because my poor advisor, who is the most lovely, wonderful human, um, one of the most lovely and wonderful humans that ever walked the earth, he would just... Um, he <laughs> he would just brace himself every time i would walk into his office cuz he would just be like Jalili, these are each different dissertations you can't keep on adding different ones so in the beginning it sort of felt i think um there were times when it felt like i was just i just couldn't decide on what to study but but truly the um the intellectual ra- rationale or the roots came from sort of another political problem that i was that I felt like was confronting us all the time. Um, and that was, that was this issue that, and but uh, that was this issue that whenever people talked about the politics of the, of, of the late 20th century, and they were often really talking about the last, you know, sort of post nineteen sixty period, there was this tendency to say things. And I'm sure we've all heard this, that, you know that that characterize the period as a period of conservative retrenchment or the rise of the right. Um, lots of reasons to say that, obviously, and to talk about that project, both the, the both the rise of the fortunes of the Republican Party and the rightward movement of the actual party itself. The tendency was to think about that as a project characterized fundamentally as anti-statist, um, as a as a. As a project that was invested in small government, and there's lots of reasons, of course, to think that you know Ronald Reagan famously said, "Government isn't the solution; it's the problem." You know, um, the Grover Norquist, I believe, it was a, you know famous was always you know, everyone could always invoke how he said his his political ambition is to shrink the government down to us you know down to the size where he could drown it in a bathtub. Uh, so you know, so this is obviously really powerful rhetoric and there's lots of reasons to let it organize the our stories about this period but i was profoundly conf- could have confused and stumbled by this because i i couldn't understand especially since i was again thinking and dealing with and confronting the the people who were dealing with the penal system and with the profound reach of mass incarceration what people call you know which is like you have know, this racialized hyper incarceration that this narrative of like state vanishing or state shrinkage or state retreatment a uh, state retreat just really didn't make sense to me because um, i was like how can we talk about the you know the, this the, you know clinton would say in 96 the era of big government is over and i'm just like how is he saying that years after you know he's passing the crime bill and um. So how do we talk about the, the how, like the persistence of this narrative during a period where we are building the largest most intrusive most expensive penal system i mean certainly ever seen in our nation but you know i mean it really in the on the globe and so for me i became i was trying to make sense i was i my one of the rationales for where I really became convinced and determined to put these different things together, these different narratives together, the welfare state and the w- fights over the war on drugs and the and cr- crime policy was really for that reason, which was, if you just focus on the welfare side, you could sort of see a decline, you know, a state shrinking narrative, right? That would kind of Um, that, that you, you could pull that out, even though I argue in the book, there's lots of ways where the state became really quite, you know, more intrusive actually in the post seventies, you know, throughout the seventies in people who were receiving public assistance lives. But I mean, but, but you just, but once you put mass, you know, mass incarceration or the incredible expansion of the penal system in the frame, you really have to sort to, to, to confront or try to adjust and make a different analysis, or at least a more, a more complicated analysis of what's the, what's the profile, what's the, what's the state transformations that are happening in this period. Um, And so I became convinced that you needed these, that you needed to put, look at these things together and, uh, and to get sort of a full picture of, of what was happening. And then even more so I became convinced that you couldn't, that you really couldn't understand the transformations in the welfare state without seeing what was going on in the penal system and vice versa. Um, so as I, as I really went into the research, I think I was suspicious that that would be the case. Um, but as I really went into the research, it just became even more clear that these transformations weren't just things that are happening on parallel tracks, which is, I think, the way that, you know, I, maybe I I had probably thought about it in certain times. I think people have thought about that these are some of the things that we list off that happened in the period, uh, but that, but that instead we, at least what I wanted to try to do is try to think about Truly, what was the relationship between those transformations? So
0: in many respects, rather than it being uh, an era of state retrenchment, it's a period where state power is redeployed from welfare to the penal system. Y-
1: yes, and to in very, very many ways, I think that is accurate. Um, I came to struggle with that frame, frankly, and I don't know if it makes sense to get into this, um, I think there's also, there's a, nowadays you will hear some people say narratives, maybe in, in, in people who are involved in policy debate, in policy debates or activism, you'll sometimes hear this frame, you know, we've gone from a welfare state to a carceral state. Um, and, you know, and and I, I certainly appreciate that. And I think that's a lot closer (laughs) to the I think that's a lot closer to what happened than narratives of like, oh, the state shrunk. Um, you know, we this is a period of state retrenchment. That that's how we explain the political project that has gotten us to where we are. Um I think that's a lot closer. The reason I I pause a bit about it, um, or or pause, you know, that I that I've sort of I really struggle with this formulation when I was writing the book, um, is that it, it it risks in some ways painting an overly rosy picture of the pre-1965 period for instance or 1970 period um we had uh, there you know there was a more robust welfare state for sure um than there was for instance in the ni- you know by the by the late 90s but that welfare state you know as you know was prof- profoundly limited <laughs> um access was uh, constricted by, in, in a host of different ways, um, you know, and, 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 and most extremely around race. Um, you know, it really wasn't until the great society that there was, you know, that, 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 that some of, that a lot of the sort of various structures that had limited, for instance, African Americans access, uh, to welfare programs really started taking s- some hits. Um, so for some reason, so so for me, I struggle with it because the I ended up moving more to a place where, um, where where I talked about the, the continuity and the sort of symbiotic relationships between these two systems, and they did change in scale. There's no question um and there's huge numbers of people saying we can't solve all of our problems with welfare it's that that i mean that the welfare state has failed to manage social disorder has failed and therefore we must embrace a pe- you know a, a, like more tough policies we must embrace the penal system if we're trying to handle crime if we're trying to handle um we have to get tough on people who are poor cuz they don't want to work so there's no question that that was very much the rhetoric that, that, that structured some of these ruptures in this, in, in that, in that period. Um, but I think that on the ground, it's a little bit more complicated. The welfare state hasn't vanished, um, particularly for people like me who are middle-class and have a job that offers health, private health insurance, <laughs> um, you know, but state subsidized health insurance. So, so it's not that the welfare state, you know, itself even vanished as much as, um, as it was restructured and its its ambitions were re-narrated, um, and 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 it really is the tr- there's a really what what I talk about is that there was really a profound transformation in all the pr- in the discourse rationalizing all the programs that were targeting the most subordinated and marginalized people in the in the country, um, and that those transformations, the embrace of more tough uh rhetoric those transformations happened in welfare and in drug policy and in criminal policy uh and that you and that um and that it wasn't as if we just shifted from one state structure to another although we did do that in a lot of cases
0: <laughs> mm, mm. so it's a sort of finer and more subtler narrative um
1: yeah it's kind of (laughs) kind and sometimes it doesn't sometimes those distinctions don't sometimes those distinctions aren't actually you know you don't need to pull those things out but for some and for some analysis it's actually quite um important and and in part because in the post you know in the period where we think of as a as a period that is, for instance, more characterized by we might think of as more characterized as a carceral state or as a, um, you know, as the sort of rise of this very huge penal system. If you, the the reason this is significant is because people still people's lives are still deeply structured by by the welfare state. <laughs> um and the contours of it and by the interactions between the welfare state and, and the penal system right so people's access to food stamps if you get a drug conviction is limited you know there's this constant I- interchange that happens so if you if if sometimes when people talk about the sort of app that the, like the the, the 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 sort of eraser or like oh, the states the welfare state has totally disappeared um you know, a lot of times as far as material benefits, that's actually, you know, not totally inaccurate what people can access. But in terms of the sort of different strategies, different institutions that people have to interact with, uh, people are having to struggle through the penal system and the welfare programs, regulations and Um, you know, in surveillance and reporting, like they're really tangling and toggling between these two systems in a way that's pretty profound. And that's why I sort of end up underscoring the fact that the welfare system and the penal system really, you know, we need to think of them as on deck constantly through both of these, through all these periods um, and looking at the way that they interact and inform each other.
0: Great. So one shift uh, that you... uh outline is a decline of this kind of strategy of rehabilitation that dominated the penal system and welfare before the 1970s. Could you outline what that was and what the thinking behind it was as well?
1: I mean, I think that it's, yes, of course, it's something that isn't in any way totally absent today. Um, so, it's for, so it's familiar to us, uh, but it was really much more at the at this core uh, of the systems that uh, that that I look at in the periods in, in the periods before, you know, I mean, this is obviously a very soft, sli- you know, slow slide. But you know, in the in in this mid seventies, when a lot of times a lot of what my book looks at is that is policies where people were sort of explicitly repudiating this, explicitly saying we should reject this commitment to rehabilitation, and I think what crucial to say about rehabilitation is that it is an individual usually it's an individually targeted straight state strategy meaning that you know not unsurprisingly it suggests that if some you know there's like let's say it's a let's say there's a person who committed a crime or um or has or uses drugs or is dependent on some substances the strategy says the state should be offering them services whereby they can affect some change at their at the individual level now sometimes those services are medical care sometimes it's education sometimes it's income support for instance um but 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 the but the idea you know especially in the criminal justice system is often that it's that there's that there's a need for behavioral transformation also that there's that we're trying to af- affect some transformation in the individual and that that is where the problem or that's where the problem lies and that's where the state needs to aim its intervention um, providing direct services now. A lot of times, people who were subject to the to, who, who received these services were subject to this logic. Welcomed certain services and felt that that was you know a great that, that we're, we're thrilled to get access. For instance, to in theory at least, drug care and um, or I mean drug treatment. the 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 chi- The reason I underscore the individualness of it is that that it's that it's important at least in my work I came to believe that it's important to recognize that that tre- that that rehabilitation and the embrace of sort of punishment or getting tough weren't actually polar opposite strategies um that they weren't that that they weren't completely diametrically opposed and they actually shared they were different i don't I don't think that they were the same although some people some people some critics at the time would actually say that they were, um, that punishment and rehabilitation, this binary that we often, you, you know, we often position were actually isn't quite right. And that if you need to understand the transformation, which is what my book sets out to do, um, between an emphasis on rehabilitation and an emphasis on punishment, you kind of have an easier time understanding. And if you recognize that they, that, that that the bridge between them is, is, um, for for what it is it's a little bit closer they share and they share an expect an understanding that the individual that there's a problem and i'm talking very you know pretty grossly and pretty gross uh generalizations here but they 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 tend to share an understanding that the that the problem is located in the individual um and 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 so when so one of the points that i make about rehabilitation in the book a lot is that is that there was um is is that is exactly that it was focused on the individual and that that a lot of the debates that are going to happen between should we rehabilitate or should we punish um really cut out a whole set of arguments and analysis and um and strategies to handle social problems because they really ended up narrowly Fighting between like how you handle how you manage the individual, the deviant individual, um, as opposed to all the other structures that might are the other voices that we're saying, let's talk about what's going on. you know let's talk about social inequality, let's talk about racial inequality, let's talk about um, exploitation and sort of more broader structures and systems that might be producing some of these problems in the first place.
0: Right, so in some respects, it's an example of how liberals and conservatives were actually quite close to one another, and that they're both their approaches are both focusing on the individual. Whereas, if you move to the left, it would be focusing on the wider structures of society.
1: Exactly, and and there were many liberals at the time. I mean, what's what's what, where it gets a little tangled is, of course, the, during the Great Society period, there was a lot of talk about, um, you know, root root causes and um and trying to um trying to deal with some of these structural things but a lot of those great society programs when they actually and by no means all um they did end up you know i mean the sort of they did end up focusing on 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 individual development for instance um and you know so there's you know it's like is was it job training or job creation for instance is like a you know kind of way of explaining you know of of characterizing the distinction you know like if we just give the individual the skill for instance like will they be able to if we give people um you know i mean or, or the example in a later period is like if we train people we give people marriage classes <laughs> um you know and we train them to get married then that'll get families out of poverty as opposed to thinking maybe about the uh the like as opposed to thinking about for instance structurally that there's that the, the jobs pay what the, you know the the they don't pay living wages for instance you know that would be some of the distinctions that um that, and some of those and, and so when the focus when the debate is focused around rehabilitation versus punishment or um yes i do think that you end up especially if if, if we if the the broader discourse unfolds under the assumption that like these are the two polar opposites of this conversation yeah there's a huge group of there's a huge group of voices and a huge group of solutions that are that are out of the frame in that situation. Um, now, of course I, I I'm careful to say that they that that is not to suggest that they were the same, right or that there wasn't a significant difference between being sent to you know a drug rehabilitation welfare program than prison. there was um. But there were certainly a lot of drug rehabilitation uh, programs during the 70s that the folks that were in them felt and said, it feels a lot like prison. (laughs) And often they were actually held in old prisons, but that's another.
0: (laughs) Great. So uh, the first part of your book deals with the war on drugs, uh, specifically in New York. Um could you outline New York's response to drugs before the 1970s
1: So um New York in the uh in the period that that my book covers New York was facing a really uh they it was facing a a rise in uh, in drug use, um, you know. After World War II, really, the heroin markets had been uh, very slowed down, if not shut shut off, during the period. So you really see there really there is some uptick in heroin use uh, in particular, but many drugs during that period. There's a lot of reasons in addition to the presence of drugs why where why anxiety about drugs escalated during that period. Uh, and what in new york state and california were really on the forefront of implementing strategies um that attempted to approach drug use and drug dependence as a disease and not as a crime. Um, There was this growing uh, acceptance of the notion of what's called the disease model of addiction, that people are sick when they compulsively use uh, these substances. They should be approached as ill, And, um, and that was in some ways I mean, always—it's not like that was a completely new idea in the '60s, but it was—you know—the Supreme Court ends up deciding that you need, you can't incarcerate people um, for having the disease of addiction that they had to approach the disease. So it really is becoming more and more, uh, more and more central to people's understandings of drug use. And so the New York state is and California, but New York state is really on the forefront of trying to operationalize that assumption. How does the state respond if we, if we need to think of drug users as, as, as ill. And so they set up, so it's really a throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks um, period in the late sixties and, and and early seventies. They are, New York is funding really a plethora of different, <coughs> excuse me, um, different strategies they, uh, New York City starts supporting what are called therapeutic communities, which are really small, um, small residential treatment centers that are run by quote ex addicts unquote. Uh, they are really the forebears of what we think of as sort of some of the drug rehabs today um, that, that are private that you can get if you have private insurance. Um, but but New York State also funds. Uh, th- What's also initiates a civil commitment program whereby they where the state uh, basically is going to civilly commit any uh, people that can be registered as a, that are sort of declared as addicts. Uh, and so they actually you don't you could sort of call your call up and, and tell them that your friend's. Um, friend was an addict and wouldn't get treatment and they would actually be able to civilly commit that person to, um, you know, what's essentially was coerced treatment. Some people went voluntarily, but they, they started building these huge, uh, really large uh, in sort of civil commitment centers. um, And, and those were, those were probably the most punitive and quite, um, you know, sort of everyone kind of agreed that they were quite, horrible um to be in they were they were sort of they were trying to build out really fast they were really under um they were understaffed they just wasn't enough trained staff to even to 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 t- t- support them um and they were often housed in old prisons actually um and they so so you know so this is where i started kind of trying to underscore like this difference this line between tree between print you know that this, this sort of uh, positioning prisons and, and, and rehabilitation as opposites. When you were actually on the ground, I was like, oh, this doesn't really work. Um, cause people were trying to, people were willing, you know, people who were convicted of drug crimes were once the word got out about these treatment centers were definitely, many were definitely willing to go to jail, uh, instead of going to these centers. Cause it was often shorter actual periods of, 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 of being held by the state. Um, so, and, and then the other thing that New York state funded was a series of methadone Clinics was sort of some of these early experiments of trying to build out a methadone, uh, you know, a a methadone maintenance infrastructure, um, which was so so. All of these strategies sort of had different, um, different characters and different implications and different logics, and and there was a lot of opposition to all of them for different reasons. Um, But that's those were some of the things that the that. That Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor at the time, um, and also some of the local sort of more local level uh, state organizations were trying to do during this period to respond to uh, drug use.
0: Great. So you mentioned Rockefeller there just at the end. Um, he passed a series of important uh, drug reforms uh, in the sort of early seventies. Could you outline those for us and how they changed New York's approach?
1: Yeah. So what happened was that um, the reason why it's important to know a little bit about those programs is for really Rockefeller was he wasn't the only person driving those those state based rehabilitative. I'm sorry those state rehabilitatively focused programs, but he've staked a huge amount of his political capital on them, on the, on the civil commitment program. And he would always promise, you know, we're going we're gonna to sweep the drug users off the street. We're going to rehabilitate them. He really made, all, he, he sort of made all these political promises about what these rehabilitative programs would do. And according to this general political discourse, the programs had, quote, failed. Um, meaning that at the next election cycle, there was someone who could say Rockefeller hasn't done anything, you know, haven't, hasn't been able to succeed on, um, uh, on, on drug use or, or Rockefeller would try to get up ahead, out ahead of it and say, I'm going to do a whole new plan on, on, on drug use. And, you know, but the, but the point is these programs were often narrated as failures, uh, in some ways. And a lot of people would say at the time, not so much because the rehabilitation was totally ineffective or certainly not because rehabilitation was less effective than incarceration um, but be- but because for instance, they were expecting you know to quote unquote sweep all the streets of addicts within like a two year period wherein they hadn't even had time to build any centers, you know, that, that like they were, there was all, they weren't funding them sufficiently. They were, you know, maybe not, they didn't have the, a particularly good treatment orientation or plan, you know? So there was all of these reasons why these, these programs were, um, were targets of, of, of attack. One of the most important, again, having nothing to do with their effect, but having to do with the fact that people really didn't like having methadone clinics in their neighborhoods. Um, they really found it. that th- There was a lot of NIMBYism of like, not in my backyard. They was a really hard time building these programs uh, because they, people were, again, there had been so much fear, fear like really intense fear around, around drug users that people were you know, not under, understandably terrified of having drug users in their neighborhood. And this was at the time people would say, stop acting like drug users are like are zombies that are going to eat your brains. Like because when we actually have to go do something to rehabilitate, quote unquote, rehabilitate them, no one wants the zombies near their kids, you know, <laughs> which, you know, so there was this really difficult dance between the sort of way that drug users were portrayed. Um, and the efforts to actually fund programs to rehabilitate them. So it's in that context that Nelson Rockefeller introduces what are you know now become infinitely called the Rockefeller Drug Laws in 1973. And he gets up at the state of the state speech and he says, I've been doing, I've done everything. I've tried everything in New York State. We have tried everything, and it has all failed. We have not made a dent. We need to change course. We need to get tough. And he proposed making the sale and trade of of substances um, any amount a life imprisonment, life in prison without the option of parole or probation. Um, Meaning that if you were caught with drugs, you would go, it was like permanent social banishment. You would never, ever, ever leave prison. Um, That's not the law that was actually passed, but that was the opening gamut. It was basically this just really intense. Um, incredibly draconian recommendation uh, that you know at the time newspapers were like I think, Ro- think someone you know some people called it like a tantrum, um, but, but that Rockefeller people I mean there was a little bit of sh- there was some shock uh, of course people realized that the policy was incredibly um, that, that that the problem and the, the the politics around this had gotten quite uh, quite escalated but but there was really a sense that this proposal was just shocking especially in the context of this like everyone supposedly agreed that drugs were or drug addiction was a disease and um you know and, and and we needed to approach it that way and rockefeller um was just like you know just really threw a grenade in the middle of that and and they ended up passing these very draconian laws uh again not as draconian as his original proposal but quite extensive um quite long sentences uh for drug for for different kinds of drug the uh, different amounts of drug sales and and that was had a really profound influence in a lot of different ways and I can talk about it. I don't want to go on too long about it, but what's interesting is that the, that they didn't, the laws didn't immediately actually lead to a massive increase in drug arrests. I mean, like it's not like the laws were passed in the next year. There was mass incarceration in New York. Um, In fact, and if anything, the New York city police, there was really like a, the, um, a lot of state institutions were actually reticent and sort of, and pulled back on instituting the laws at a very at a very in a very intensive way um, so it's a little bit complicated the, the the way in which and the periods in which the though those those laws start really escalating uh, um, the prison populate the prison populations in New York. But it's very difficult to underestimate the power the political power of Rockefeller's move. It was a it was a national story. It was totally understood as a way um, as a as a part of him trying to make himself viable as a presidential candidate. you know he had wanted to be president forever um, He was understood as excessively moderate in the contemporary Republican Party so this was viewed as a move to kind of get himself um, more like more legitimacy within the Republican party. Some people debate the extent to which that was the motivation, but I think that was certainly um, at least interpreted as part of it. So there was this sense that this was a, just a really massive, that this really started shaping the dialogue um, and the political discourse around how we respond to quote the drug crisis. Um, And so it was very important in that way. Uh, and and it, but it really came out of, and what I emphasize is, it really came out of a crisis in the welfare state's ability to handle this problem. It just, um, and and so one of the things that I really emphasize is that it, you have to understand these laws as embedded in the complications and violences and limitations of trying to handle some of of these social problems through a welfareist. Uh, lens.
0: Mm. And how popular were the reforms on the ground level? You've obviously mentioned the response of the Republican Party, but in New York itself, um, what was the reception?
1: I mean, you know, I don't have, I don't remember the polling off the top of my head. I I, I think that people for, for many, many, many communities, it was just absolutely horrifying, um, you know, for communities of Color well there's a lot of debate there. i mean I think there was divisions within communities of color by the way, there were many people that felt that the state hadn't done enough to handle the the, the um s- drug trade in their communities and so, so there are some people that maybe that 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 welcomed um an effort to get tough, but there were many people who saw this um within communities of color as race as as, as fundamentally racist um as- as draconian as targeting young um you know as tra- targeting people of color. Uh, There were other, um, but, and, and, but within the, within other groups, I think the contingency, the constituencies that Rockefeller was increasingly relying on both within state politics and within federal politics, uh, I think they played quite well. Um, And they, uh, you know, and, and there were a lot of people that said, again within the Republican Party that between that Attica that sort of Rockefeller's just violent um authoriza- authorization of the violent retaking of of the of the Attica prison after the uprising there in 1971 and the Rockefeller drug laws that those two things those those two t- tough postures were instrumental in making him a continued viable um sort of character in in uh, in in presidential politics um and so they so so i think that for, i think that first for for rockefeller's purposes he you know he, i i think that he has reason he would have had reason to believe that he uh got a lot of sort of mean, that, that that the that the decision played well
0: um so the second part of your book uh moves on to welfare reform, and I was wondering first what what was this kind of thinking behind uh the, the the decision to split it off into three different parts and why did you um why did you structure it so that it went um drug welfare reform and then uh, the penal system
1: um so the the decision to 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 split it off and i had so many different versions where i was like trying to make them three separate studies, trying to find ways to intertwine them all throughout one long narrative. So it was a lot of, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of different, uh, you know, plans on the drawing board at different times. But I felt that it was important to do a section on, on welfare, because I, because I mean, really, of, of course, in some reasons, because that's where I had started, um, you know, as, as, as someone who was interested in women's Issues of women's poverty, um, but also because I was really sh- sort of intrigued and shocked to find that in the case of welfare, there had been there had been these parallels with the with these other studies that I had done in 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 what could be considered within the penal system which is as opposed to being a lot of the politics, instead of being, oh, let's go from a big state to a small state. were much more centered around these debates of rehabilitation versus, you know, like needing to have sanctions, which is something that they actually call welfare. You know, they actually have built into welfare policy by the nineties, actually calling them sanctions, you know, punishments through the welfare state, that there really was this embrace of the need to kind of get tough and, crack down on welfare recipients and through welfare policy. So for me, it was really important to have it because it kind of broke down this idea that everything just went to the penal system, for instance, right? But, but actually showed that a lot of these debates over how you handle inequality, how you handle um, sort of what are considered deviant populations, that, that there's similar, system, similar debates happening within the welfare programs. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to have that included in part because it, it helped illustrate that point. I was that kind of slightly complicated point that I was trying to make earlier that, that it, that it doesn't quite work to say we move from a welfare state to a carceral state. Um, you know, that there's these ways where the welfare system itself maintains, but actually takes on these, you know, it it brings in some of these punitive or, or increasingly, um, punitive uh, practices or and and embraces a more punitive um, logic in some in in ways um, which is not to suggest that the welfare system before this wasn't <laughs> still didn't have some of those features I mean that's what's so interesting when you actually mm. really look at the history so
0: moving on to the sort of the policy making itself around welfare. Uh, Why was there a renewed focus on welfare fraud uh, during this period, and how did this lead to the emergence of this sort of infamous figure of the quote-unquote welfare queen?
1: Yes, that. um, so it's interesting. When I started to do this research, I, I was in Illinois doing graduate school. And just almost by happenstance, I decided to do – I was sort of looking into welfare in the 1970s, and I was just shocked to find out that all of it was about fraud, that a huge amount of the debates and the the talk during this period was about fraud. And I sort of by mistake discovered that the origin – that that the, quote, original welfare queen um, actually came from – you know was actually the, the case actually uh, originated or really got going in Illinois. So there was some happenstance, but I as I mentioned in the beginning of our talk, like I had been in a sense I had spent six you know or years navigating around this creature the welfare queen in you know in, in the early 2000s. We were still confronting this caricature. so I was fascinated to find out that she was really born out of the nineteen seventy in this, in the nineteen seventies and this particular obsession with um, welfare fraud. And so, to answer your question, I argue that welfare fraud you know comes becomes an increasingly important issue in the mid to late 70s um because the again because there's all these te- because economic changes and racial change together were putting a particular set of pressures at, on the welfare state and the i mean there's a lot of different things but the, the I think one of the most important ones was huge numbers of um of African Americans and I mean, particularly African-Americans, but also other communities of color um, with uh, Latinas were getting access to the to welfare and welfare programs, which they had historically actually been denied. So there was a tr- transformation happening in society where through a number of mechanisms that I won't get into, um, a lot of the of the the, the policy mechanisms that had kept p- welfare rolls low. um through various, uh, a bunch, you know, sort of man in the house rules and all these different rules were falling away. And these rules, especially in the South, have been used to, to really keep um, communities of color from accessing, accessing the benefits to which they were legally entitled. Or to which they were entitled, based on, for instance, means testing, or you know. So they, so 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 there's there's this way in which communities that had previously been understood as undeserving of state benefits and undeserving of social of these social supports, were suddenly through to really through their own, through through their own activism and mobility, were suddenly getting access to these programs, and that created, and that became used as a as a political tool to discuss general anxiety and an um, and opposition to the reorganization of racial hierarchy in the first place. But on the other hand, it actually put real strain on, on welfare budgets. So welfare caseloads were increasing dramatically. Um, this was in part because of, uh, because, of, because of economic shifts and because of legal changes. So meaning that there were more people, there was material sh- there were sort of economic changes that were making more and more people need public assistance, but there was also the fact that there was all these tools that people had that had the state had used to keep the the rolls slow, and suddenly those tools were being taken away, and so, so so now states are facing this kind of politically complicated if uh demogra- the shifts in the in the in the rolls they are confronting the actual costs of these programs. Um, I think that there was a lot of other things that were hurting state budgets, you know, that, that welfare ends up being blamed for, but but welfare certainly did that the cost of welfare was certainly increasing. Um and the and and well and welfare fraud, you know, kind of fraud investigations had always been a tool of welfare policy. I mean, this is not new, but in some ways fraud is one of the main tools that people that the state still has as we go into the mid 70s to, quote, trim the roles. And so I think that for a series of actually bureaucratic reasons, but also political reasons, people increasingly say, okay, the reason that we have such big welfare roles is because of undeserving people, because of tricksters that are sort of working on, to, are, are, are cheating and getting onto the roles and getting money that they don't deserve. And so fraud, now often th- these, I mean, so 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 on one level, there's actually policy about who can get welfare and who can't. And there's people trying, there's a really huge increase in people trying to figure out whether, you know, who is eligible and who's not. Um, and so they're using those tools to purge people from the roles. But at another level, this is very, this has a really huge political utility because people are able to talk about, I mean, it's less and less okay to say, you know, African Americans aren't citizens and don't deserve rights. But 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 it is but but so so talking about welfare and welfare fraud also is becomes a way to talk about the fact that there's people who that that people don't think should be rights bearing citizens don't think should have full claim on the state that now have it and so those so so this is also a this is also a popular political discourse to talk about the you know the actual um, this this feeling this just. Pro, you know, that, that there's, that there's profound reorganization and challenge to white supremacy. Um, so, so I think welfare fraud is working on a bunch of different levels. And what the welfare queen is, is she is this character who she's actually, she's a real person. There's a tendency to, there's a, there's the discourse that she was actually totally invented by Reagan. And that is, it's not accurate, actually, although it's not far from the, from the sort of heart of the truth. Um, but but she was a really like a very unique, totally bananas character, um, who wa- who had been involved in multiple. Who, who was really which, like a she was a con artist. She was a high and she had been involved in high ticket welfare fraud, um, and. The state, you know, there was like supposedly she had 25 aliases and, you know, different names and social security cards and six Cadillacs and all these wigs and multiple husbands, some of them dead, some of them alive. And she was just ripping off everybody. And and they and they make a huge deal of this story of 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 her narrative. It gets incredible press coverage Um, and and. There, there, you know, and some of the story has some of that story has some basis in reality, but the the true myth, you know, mystification and absolute political, you know, violence is to make is the politics turns to make her not this, you know, quite strange historical character, but actually sort of a representative welfare recipient. You know, she st- st- starts to stand in for. Um, you know welfare more broadly. And so the welfare queen originally based on this person who, you know, and uh who who's really anything but an average um welfare recipient becomes this framework for which to understand and to sort of reimagine poor women on public assistance more generally.
0: So um as you as you mentioned briefly, there uh, Reagan sort of supercharges this discourse of of the welfare queen, although um, it didn't originate with him. Uh, what was his vision of welfare reform during the nineteen seventies, and how successful was he at implementing it when he was governor of California?
1: So he really took this idea that what's 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 important about Reagan is there's a bunch of governors that are confronting, including Rockefeller. Uh, increased welfare caseloads and and are struggling uh, to manage caseloads, but also using the issue politically. Uh, and, and Reagan is, is, so everyone's sort of trying to figure out what do we, you know, a lot of people are trying to figure out what do we do about these caseloads. If there's a welfare crisis. And, 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 uh, and Nick, Nixon so actually floats, you know, what many people have forgotten, but it's really a Kind of remarkable historical, you know, sort of indicator of the difference in historical times. Nixon floats what's called the Family Assistance Plan, which is, you know, by no means a guaranteed minimum income, but it's sort of in the in that family of policies, whereby he would replace the welfare program with um, with re- a guaranteed minimum um, with with some some sort of income support, kind of regardless of. Uh, you know like regardless of family structure and there's all these details about this it's not worth getting into but the point is there's there's really an opening during this period of like how are we going to confront this situation and for Nixon the idea is something that to, to many people would be shocked to hear that this was a proposal floated by a Republican president so he's floating the family assistance plan other people are talking about cuts and just overall reductions in grants so like we'll just save money by reducing everybody's grants and Reagan embraces a bunch of things but one of the things that he floats is the idea that we actually really need to focus on fraud, that if we just get out all the undeserving people, um, you know, the, the, the lazies, the cheats, the liars, the you know, the, if we prune the roles of those people, and often they use language about purging, you know, it's quite um, quite intense language. That that's how we'll get the rolls out of, under control. So he really um, has a lot of focus on the fact that there's undeserving, unworthy people, and they institute a set of policies that increase surveillance on the people that are receiving public assistance. And um, so anyway, so he inter- he introduces this really massive welfare reform proposal um, that in uh, in California that does a lot of things. Um, it was an attempt to to, uh, to implement some work requirements. It did include some of that. It was never quite operationalized, but he really, but I, but he really introduces into um, the national rhetoric, but certainly within the state, these, this frame of both, um that you need to really uh you know have these like fraud patrol units that are that are that are in coordination with with the penal system with this with 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 uh district attorneys and there's this emphasis that people need to be coerced and forced into work that you need to actually really crack down on. Um, uh, child support that you that the that, that you need to threaten um that that there that you need to responsabilize all the other people in the family you know so so he really introduces a set of um a set of policies that are sig- really significant when they pass in uh, in California even though that legislation was a compromise legislation with the democrats um but most importantly i think he or 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 as importantly he he starts setting up a frame that he really, that's very powerful nationally, and that really carries to the national level. Um, you know, he his people go immediately and start working for Nixon. They uh, Reagan really takes this, um, a lot of these ideas to the White House when he gets there, and he's just takes it running at a national level. And you see, you know, by 96, you see a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the kind of logics and understandings that were cooked into Reagan's di- rhetoric. You see that manifesting in the work requirements, and you know, in, all, in a lot of the things in the nineteen in the anti fraud stuff in the nineteen ninety six welfare reform law.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So a slightly broader question, uh, which relates to uh, what we were discussing earlier about it, kind of transcending liberal conservative divides, which is how did this anti welfare politics change conceptions of economic citizenship?
1: Oh, <laughs> um, so. I would say that in some ways it built upon understandings of economic citizenship. You know that there were some that already existed, but there was this all of these debates, and I talk a lot about this in the book. And I um, is were were structured by this idea of that of sort of legitimate rights-bearing citizens and who sacrificed their rights by certain behaviors. So what I argue is that really during this period that there's just even though t- people tend to think post-civil you know, civil rights, that we really come to an idea of a sort of equal universal citizenship. I see in drug and crime and welfare policy incredible consternation and contestation over who gets rights and benefits f- within the polity. And in welfare, what you see is over and over again, people are saying, these people don't aren't pay aren't taxpayers, they aren't workers. So therefore, they shouldn't get x, 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 and x, you know, it's this constant, I am it. So every time people, I mean, it's just amazing, almost every I read 1000s of constituent letters, and almost everyone started as a taxpaying hardworking member, you know, as a taxpaying citizen, as a person who works as a person, who you know, like always this sense that like, that that our rights and our ability to claim benefits from the state was contingent upon being defined as rights, being defined as a worker, being defined as a, um, uh, as a taxpayer, you know, of course I, I take huge issue with those definitions of who's a worker and who's a taxpayer. I mean, I think everyone is a taxpayer that's buying things and I think parenting is labor, even if that's, if you're not involved in wage work, but, but that's, but all of through these debates, there's really just fraught um, negotiations over who, um, who can, who can claim, Benefits and of course this is a lot of this is in response to the the profound claims that were being made on this date and um, and the challenges to, to 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 white supremacy and to the existing um, racial order and economic order that was coming from social movements and so but I think what the so, so I don't think that things are getting made up whole cloth but I think. Through these debates in welfare, you really see an entrenchment or a sort of re-articulation of this idea that there are people who sacrifice their claims to economic security, to freedom, to liberty, to a voice in the polity, to the vote and that those things aren't actually granted they have to be earned and you can sacrifice them by breaking the law you can sacrifice them by being a poor woman who needs public assistance you can sacrifice some degrees i mean varying in a lot of different places some degrees of of um of rights of voice and and of claims to state benefits um so that's so i see that being fought out in uh it, it through the welfare stuff in very um very art- very kind of con explicit ways. You know, there's people saying during the 1970s, I mean, it's not a widespread opinion, it's very legally dubious, but there are people saying we should take the vote away from welfare recipients.
0: So uh, it, again, it's this issue of continuity and that it's kind of like a, a reassertion of the, the the classic idea of the undeserving and the deserving poor and who who should benefit from state assistance. And again, it's heavily racialized like it was during the New Deal period.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really a, yeah. And that's why I sort of struggle with, that's why I think it's important to say like things changed in the seventies, but a lot of things are being simply kind of reworked and renegotiated and it's being sewn together through cloth that was very much assembled already. (laughs) You know, this these a lot. And um, so, yeah, I don't see, you know, I don't see, uh, you know, I wouldn't um, say that, nothing changed. You know, I think that, but I do think that, um, that there is, there is really important continuity. So I don't, Michelle Alexander doesn't make this, doesn't really say this, but sometimes people, I think misinterpret her title, like the new Jim Crow to call the period, you know, after the, in the 1970s or the period that people talk about as mass incarceration as just the same as Jim Crow, you know? So I think it's important to say, yes, there's huge continuity, but there, but the state mechanisms and the logics and the rationale are different, but of course they're made through and built on things that were existent. And it's, you certainly, it's certainly not a whole different, you know, it's certainly not a complete you know break with an erasure and, and everything starts again, nor is it though, that everything's exactly the same.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So moving on to the uh, third part of your book, which deals specifically with the carceral state, uh, and again, it, it focuses on California. Um, why did policymakers upend the ideal of rehabilitation during this period? And could you also outline uh, some of the reforms that were enacted during the late seventies in California?
1: Yeah. So, so the rehabilitative ideal was actually, pro, you know, is understood as being, you know, one of the most the, the sort of organizing principle of at least northern. Um, uh, prison systems you know that the idea you know was called the department of corrections that the that the purpose of incarceration uh, uh, you know sort of rhetorically was to rehabilitate people and restore them you know reintroduce them into society as you know some measure of 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 you know of a of a you know rehabilitated person and a viable uh citizen because You know, I I of course have like have so many different parts of this, and I'm trying. I don't want to go on and on, but I, but, but what? um, So there was a lot of programming within prisons that were, you know, focused towards rehabilitation. Um, California, in some ways, had, which is why it's such an interesting place. Probably the most um, developed set of programs and 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 systems that were dedicated to rehabilitation, meaning that, you know, there were people that were in the Southern penal systems. I'm sure there were people where it said rehabilitation, but there was really very, little, I mean, you know, just, um, considerably less, uh, actually programmatic emphasis on that, uh, on that there. Um, and so what happened in California in the, in the seventies is that there was really a challenge to that mission from both, um, what you might call the left and the right. There, was, um, there had long been skepticism of, re- of rehabilitation and, and that mission of a penal system from people. It's not like this was universally accepted. There were a lot of people, obviously, um, within the prison system, for sure, and also politically, that had said, listen, guys, prisons are to punish and to warehouse. It, let's just give up the ghost of rehabilitation and or it's like these people don't deserve rehabilitation don't you know so there's a lot of opposition to rehabilitation it wasn't as if everyone agreed on that before the 70s so there have been long stern op- opposition but really there was actually a just a vi a very vibrant and active um movement um often let i, I really point to its roots you know um, among um within prisons there was a lot of resistance to prisons in general and and critique of what was seen as the hypocrisy of the rehabilitative mission um, and the violence of the rehabilitative mission um, from many different quarters, but often people that saw themselves as allied with prisoners and often prisoners or incarcerated people themselves. Um, so the rehabilitative mission was being challenged. Uh, people thought of, it. I mean, think of, you know, Clockwork Orange, think, I mean, these, these critiques of it being sort of cr- really creepy, the the, um, the critiques of it being um, that, you know, again, trying to individualize the social problems, you know, this is all about bad individuals, as opposed to, you know, a lot of prisoner, a lot of incarcerated people were talking about how listen, You know, let's talk about where crime came from. Let's talk about what the situation that made me vulnerable to arrest uh, and not the other people that are doing the same drugs or selling the same drugs. They just don't do it in a community that's heavily policed. Um, or... Why is, you know, why is, you know, who's, who are the, who are the thieves, the people that are stealing, um, or, you know, or, that are, that are stealing money from workers through, as corporate leaders or, or the thieves that are trying to, you know, are st- stealing money from a gas station. So there was a lot of kind of saying, like, let's talk about the real structural social systems that would actually, that actually produce crime, produce the understandings of who is a criminal. And then, and, and at the same time, there was this, there the, the prison populations were becoming increasingly Um, black and brown. So I think the other thing that was happening during this period is the people that were quote-unquote candidates for rehabilitation are again a population that for many people are not understood as people that are candidates for full citizenship you know so so as the as the prisons become it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing but as the prisons become darker um, I think the rehabilitative mission is also um, being challenged on those grounds which is do are these people really are these people really uh, viewed as legitimate candidates for rehabilitation and so what happens Happens in the late seventies in California is that there's actually a strange, um, in the incident there's actually a strange confluence, or bedfellows or allies you might say, um, where where people come together to dislodge um, this rehabilitative mission from its sort of central place in the commitment of. California prisons and so the prisoners union which by by no means represented all prisoners and certainly not the most radical prisoners in California prison movements um, joins with you know some sort of moderate republicans and to to abolish what's called the indeterminate sentence which is really the cornerstone of the rehabilitative prison which is the sort of mechanism by which people got out of prison was not that they'd served their 12 years but that they had been judged by a parole board to be quote sufficiently reformed and so, in seventy six, the the incarcerated people largely hated this policy. It inc- introduced incredible um, it, uh, uncertainty into their lives. They never knew when they would be released. The people that were released early were often just the best best prisoners, not necessarily the people that were the. And by best, that means people that were, that, that, that followed the prisoner's rule, prison's rules, not, you know, or that weren't activists, that weren't writ writers, not necessarily the people that had committed the, you know, who, who had, who had committed the most least objectionable crimes, for instance. Um, so there was, there was incredible, incredible hatred of the indeterminate sentence and of parole boards and of this kind of, uh, of this way of determining how long people sent in prison. There was incredible hatred of that from, um, from incarcerated people themselves, but also from other groups. And so these groups got together and they actually replaced the indeterminate sentence in California um, with what's called the determinant sentence, more fixed sentencing, meaning that people had a much clearer sense of how long they would spend in prison. Um, uh, And, and in some ways, this was a policy that was welcomed by some people um, on the left and some Sort of, kind of, you know, reformer types, because uh, they thought that the indeterminate sentence was so arbitrary, was you know, was kind of cruel in its application, forced people to perform rehabilitation in ways that were state-sanctioned, were unevenly applied racially, um, and yeah, and so that's the law that that's the 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 first law that was passed. And then the, the the thing that I will say about that is that in su- that that's important to note is that what happened subsequently though is by ending parole board's discretion over who got who, who how long people spent in prison, meaning it was no longer decided by this group of people who met with a prisoner every year and asked, you know, whether they felt reform sufficiently reformed or evaluated whether they felt sufficiently reformed. So now the power resided with the legislature and it was a power that the legislators went absolutely berserk with over the next decades. You know, I think they spent the California legislature would enact a thousand laws, increasing punishments, um, over the next, I think it was the next decade, but I'm not, I have to have to double check that, uh, the fact, but they, but it was just, it just became, uh, you know, just a, a carnival of, of increasing punishment. Um, In the following years. And so that is, and and so in a sense, it's part that's, that wasn't an inevitable result of transferring, um, you know, of of transferring of the end of the indeterminate sentence. My argument is not like those people were wrong to do that in any way. Um, You know, you see massive increases in incarceration in places that that retain the indeterminate sentence that don't, never had an indeterminate sentence. So, but it's a place where you see a fight over the state's, uh, the state's role and the purpose of the state's punishing arm of, of the penal system
0: mm-hmm. so it's kind of a clash between a i guess a more administrative approach with uh, parole boards versus the legislators themselves having control
1: yeah so it, it's really i mean so so in the case i mean the switch from indeterminate to determined sentencing is important um, i focus on it as much uh, on the as much as it gives me a place that generates a lot of debate, you know, and a lot of discourse about the purpose of prisons and who gets to be, who's being served and who, what's the causes of crime. But from a, but, at, but at an administer but at a sort of policy level, it is also significant and it is a, it, many, many States in the following years um, decades is, are going to make a similar transition from, in, from indeterminate to determinate sentencing and giving more sentencing power to, um, to, to to different people. And what's important to say is there's always discretion in the criminal justice system. And so it's not that there's an elimination of discretion, it's just the discretion shifts. Um, you know, so now the discretion is much, you know, determinant it's much more lodged with legislators and critically prosecutors. And because prosecutors get, you know, for some technical reasons I won't get into prosecutors under fixed sentencing and under sentencing guidelines and under mandatory minimums end up having a huge 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 amount of the discretion for how much time people spend in prison because they get to choose who what's char- who what you get charged with you know because they know you know since the since the the time is fixed between the charge you know relatively fixed between the charge and the uh and and the and the crime the discretion then a lot of the discretion moves to prosecutors who you know who are the people who are setting up you know who obviously choose what crime is charged um and it's really, and I think there's been some convincing work, it's really the, it's, and, and if you're trying to understand where, uh, you know, what really drives the just absolute explosion of, of prisons, prison populations in the, uh, in the late 20th century, prosecutorial, prosecutorial decisions, prosecutorial choices are a huge, huge, huge driver.
0: hmm Great. Well, thank you very much for being on the program today, Professor Koolhaasman. That was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, We've just got time for one more question, which is what are you working on now?
1: Um... uh... Sorry, now you've got me like so into this old project. It's hard to—it's um, been a while since I thought so much about it. But it, it's—but it's fun to talk about, it, and it's also really exciting to talk briefly about what I'm working on now. And it's a little bit of a different gear, but there's a kind of clear bridge between this work and the work that I'm working on now, um, which is these debates over sort of who gets voice in society and on what terms. And my new uh, book project is on the politics of of not voting. In the um, in the decades after the Voting Rights Act, it's on non-voters and not voting from in a lot of different settings. You know, everything from um, from from felon disenfranchisement to uh, people living in Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. to registration rules and all these de- debates about voter fraud and voter. Um, Voter suppression and voter apathy, um, and, and sort of why we, you know, so why we have a, um, <laughs> why we have a society that sort of on one hand fetishizes, democ- or, you know, American democracy as the sort of bedrock of our of what of what of what we are and what defines us on the global scale and also internally and and how we as a society have historically worked out um and worked to actually perpetuate this very very limited actual participation in the democracy <laughs> um you know so i'm looking at like post so it, so it's basically sort of a, a history of american democracy post voting rights act when i think many of us at least until recently sort of thought of that as a story that was pretty much finished after the after the voting rights act you know like we kind of sauced it out and we decided that we were a full you know everyone was a every citizen was a full um you know was we had full right you know, had full rights to participate um and what i'm finding is that actually there's incredible Debates about who should have a right to be heard in our democracy and incredible debates about what what kind of democracy we have um, that really raged on through, you know, obviously till now. Um, So I'm really looking at those debates in this period, which at least I, but I think many of us sort of assume is the period when everything was sort of settled and finished, you know, Um, and seeing in this in the 70s, 80s. Um, and '90s, kind of leading up to that crazy election in 2000, all of these debates about, you know, does the state have a responsibility to actually ensure that people participate in democracy? Does it have a responsibility to make sure that people don't participate in democracy if they're not, quote, if they don't have IDs or if they're not educated enough? And, you know, so that's the that's the project that I'm um, that I'm working on now, and it's got really interesting, you know, and and, and interestingly, the welfare state and the criminal justice system. Um, are really key characters in a lot of the debates over um, over voting, which I wouldn't have even necessarily anticipated when I started.
0: Mm, that sounds really fascinating, and very timely. Also, I very much look forward to reading that. Thanks again for being on the program today.
1: Um, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to talk to you.